0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 20th, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. and this week's show, science journalist Josh Sokol talks about a global cooling event sparked by space dust that led to a huge shift in animal and plant diversity 466 million years ago. And I talked with Kenneth Rosenberg about steep declines in bird abundance in the US and Canada. His team estimates about three billion, that's billion with a B, birds have gone missing since the 1970s. Now we have Josh Sokol, a science journalist, and he's here to talk about global cooling that happened 466 million years ago. Hi, Josh. Hi. Okay, let's talk global cooling, which is kind of a nice change of pace for us here. What do researchers think happened all the way back 466 million years ago?
1: So 466 million years ago is during the Ordovician period,
0: Okay. which is an early
1: period in animal life on Earth. And there's a lot of coincidences that line up all around the same time. There's an asteroid that suddenly breaks up and explodes in the asteroid belt, kind of pelting the Earth with fragments. There's climate change on Earth, where suddenly an ice age begins and sea levels fall. And then also there's a change in animal life, where suddenly many of the modern animal groups all become much more diverse
0: And the new research now suggests that this thing that was happening in space might have triggered all of those other things.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the research is a way, really for the first time, to convincingly link this breakup event, this explosion in space, to the climate change on Earth and to the changes in life on Earth. And it kind of tells a a little bit of a narrative of how it all happened.
0: Let's go through some of the evidence that's been found for the explosion in space, the asteroid disintegrating and heading towards Earth.
1: So we have two pieces of evidence to think that there was this asteroid explosion at this time period, 466 million years ago. One thing is that there's a class of meteorites called L. chondrites. Mm-hmm. And a very high fraction of them all seem to be heat-shot at the same time period. So when people recover them and do some isotopic analysis of them, they all trace back to this one event, very explosive event that they formed in. That's one piece of evidence that people have known for a really long time. Separately, Scientists in Sweden have dug over 100 fossil meteorites that date to this exact same time Hmm. period and are the same type out of a quarry, a limestone quarry.
0: Wow. So what's a fossil meteorite? Does that just mean it's really old or do certain things happen to it that changes composition?
1: In this quarry in Sweden, they actually have some fossils from the Ordovician period Hmm. that are this old right next to a meteorite. So it, it just means that a meteorite fell in from space, got buried in sediment, and was preserved there for the intervening time.
0: So one thing that you also talk about in your story is the importance of not just these big fragments, but also the dust that rained down on Earth at this time.
1: That's really the new development here. So the same scientists in Sweden who have been digging out these fossil meteorites from this time period also found in this study that there are very small grains that also come from the same meteorite type, the L-chondrites. And the grains spike during this period, right after the asteroid explosion is thought to have happened. They also found chemical isotopes in the sediment that spike at this time. And they believe that the chemical isotopes are showing that very, very fine dust, even smaller than the dust grains, fell onto Earth, maybe a thousand or 10,000 times more in mass than the amount of dust that was falling on Earth before this period. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the, the new advance of this study is really showing all of this dust and grains are raining down on Earth. At the same time, you're getting these, these larger meteorites.
0: Huh. Okay, this is where we start to link things together. How does this dust lead to what happens with the climate on Earth?
1: There's already been some suspicion from geologists and paleontologists that at this period, you had a global greenhouse climate, a warm one, kind of like we're headed today, mm-hmm. transition really quickly to an ice age climate where there's ice at the poles and sea levels fall. There was already evidence for that. What this paper is doing by finding the dust is it's saying the dust spikes at the same time we see the ice age begin. So maybe the dust is acting to reduce the amount of sunlight that the Earth gets. Maybe there's dust in space between the Earth and the sun. There's also dust in the Earth's atmosphere, all from this asteroid breakup, and it's basically shielding the Earth from sunlight and cooling it down.
0: And it just sort of envelops the planet. It's everywhere.
1: So the dust is raining down on the land. It's raining down on the ocean during that time. It's hanging out in the atmosphere Mm -hmm. too. It's lofted in the atmosphere. And it's also sitting in space Throughout the inner solar system, yeah, between the Earth and the Sun, so it's just, just everywhere. Wow,
0: as we mentioned before, this not only changed the temperature and sent us into global cooling, but it also changed the animals and plants and other living things on Earth. What what kind of shifts were seen, and what would be the explanation for linking that to this global
1: cooling? This is a little bit complicated, but at this period on Earth, all of the major animal groups are already around. Suddenly, they become or three times more diverse within the groups. Animals like trilobites become physically bigger. Mm-hmm. Groups like nautiloids, which are sort of the top predators, they, you know, the tentacled cephalopods, they're the top predators of those oceans, they become more diverse, bigger, spread around the world. Reefs become controlled by animals for the first time mm-hmm. permanently in history, and they have stayed that way ever since. The world of the Ordovician contains many small continents spread around at different latitude and longitude. When the ice age happens, it drops sea levels. And so all the shallow seas between these continents Mm -hmm. in different climates suddenly have, some of them are cold, some of them are warm. They're all spatially isolated from each other. The sea level falls. So it's hard for organisms from one shallow sea to disperse to another one. Everything can evolve in its own little isolated area in its own niche.
0: Yeah, islands are recipes for diversity usually, right?
1: Right, exactly. So this is kind of like some sort of supersized oceanic version of the Galapagos that (laughs) that happens at this time during this ice age. And by the end of it, you have really dramatic changes that set up the oceans the way they are for the rest of, of that era and the way that they are today.
0: This is totally a compelling narrative, but will there ever be a way to show that one thing caused the other thing that caused the other thing? You know, what kind of evidence would further support this pattern?
1: So far, this pattern of the dust from space comes in, the sea level seems to fall as the earth cools, and at the same age, biodiversity increases. That whole pattern has only been seen in two limestone sections, one in Russia and one in Sweden. hmm so the first thing to do is obviously in this theory, this is a global event. You should see the dust and the cooling happen at the same time everywhere. So right now, the authors of this paper, the Swedish scientists, are already working on another location in China where they're going to try to document the same pattern. Very cool.
0: Earth is just one of the planets of the inner solar system. Is there any way to know if they also had similar things happen, um, you know, on Mars or Mercury or Venus?
1: Wow. That's an interesting question. I, I think probably our knowledge of the helioclimate of Mars or Venus is really, really sparse compared yeah. to what we can tell from Earth.
0: Yeah.
1: And the other thing is, I said earlier that there are lots of fossil meteorites from the Ordovician right after this breakup. There are also craters on Earth, big craters hmm. all around the world that date to this time period. Wow. So I'm sure that if the solar system is full of debris and fragments are hitting the Earth, they're also hitting Mars. Yeah. You know. At Venus during that time.
0: Speaking of craters, a big impact from an asteroid a mirror 65 million years ago probably wiped out dinosaurs. How does this event in the Ordovician compare to what happened with dinosaurs?
1: This is similar in that something happening out in space and things coming to Earth can have major impact. But in this case, there isn't a single huge crater mm-hmm. like happens you know at the end of the, the Mesozoic when the dinosaurs die mm-hmm. in this case we see the dust there are the small meteorites okay and there aren't super huge craters so this is showing potentially that a breakup event and asteroids coming towards the earth as long as they're not huge. And as long as the climate changes in a good way instead of a bad way, they could have positive effects on life.
0: This brings us to the last point I wanna talk about, which is how this relates to modern ideas of geoengineering, this idea of maybe throwing some of our own dust up into the atmosphere in an effort to cool the planet. What does this tell us about that idea?
1: One of the interesting things about this study is the authors are proposing that some external thing happened to Earth's climate, A lot of dust flooded the solar system and the Earth's atmosphere, and this changed things. It changed things for the better. It cooled a greenhouse down into something else, and life benefited. And the ways in which they're proposing it cooled are both ways that have been proposed by geoengineers. So the idea is that we could do versions of these things now to cool the Earth. And before this paper, people had already suggested this. One of the ways in this paper, thought to have cooled the Ordovician, is the dust blocks some sun from reaching the Earth. The other way is that the dust, which contains some amount of iron, falls on the ocean. When it hits the ocean, it fertilizes photosynthetic organisms, microbes. They soak up carbon dioxide, and then they die, sink to the bottom of the ocean, they trap that carbon dioxide, and the Earth cools. Given that both of those ideas, using dust to block sunlight and fertilizing the oceans, are already in circulation for geoengineering, it's possible that if the link here can really be established and it's clear that there was some sort of big external cooling force in the Ordovician, that what happened at this time could be relevant to what we decide to do and how we evaluate the larger effects that these sorts of plans would have.
0: I don't know that it was good news for all the living organisms on Earth. I think a lot of them must have gone away and new ones arose to fill those niches though, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly true. So one of the paleontologists that I spoke to said the Ordovician biodiversification event sounds like a really good thing. And it was a good thing for life on Earth, but absolutely there were losers and lots of species went extinct at that time period too. They couldn't adapt. So if we have a narrow view of what would be best for us as a species or best for some of the species we care about, something really dramatic like this happening in a short period of time is not necessarily a good thing.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Great. Thank you. Josh Sokol is a science journalist based in Boston. You can find a link to his story at sciencemag.org podcast. And you can read the research for free in Science Advances. Stay tuned for an interview with Kenneth Rosenberg about big bird losses across the U.S. and Canada. This week's episode is brought to you in part by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about STEAM fun. With a KiwiCo subscription, each month a kid in your life will receive a fun, engaging new project which will help develop their creativity and confidence. The projects are designed to spark tinkering and learning in kids of all ages. All projects, inspirations, and activities are created by a team of product designers in-house in Mountain View, California, and rigorously tested by kids. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project detailed, easy to follow instructions, and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. KiwiCo inspires kids to see themselves as makers and is on a mission to empower kids not just to make a project, but to make a difference. KiwiCo is offering Science Magazine podcast listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit kiwico.com magazine. That's kiwico.com slash magazine. This episode is also brought to you by Mova Globes. Mova Globes turn all on their own, with or without a base, in any setting, with ambient lighting. No batteries needed, no sloppy cords. Instead, hidden magnets provide the movement. With over 40 different designs, including world maps, outer space, and famous artworks, there's something out there for everyone. The outer space collection even features graphics provided by NASA and JPL complete with planets, moons, asteroids, and constellation designs. It's a great gift for the science lover or the map lover in your life. Or pair it with your own home decor as a conversation starter. I just want to take a minute to mention that they have a Mars globe. This recreation presents a direct look at each crater, along with multiple layers of red, brown, and tan colors to make up its surface. The graphics are satellite images taken by NASA, giving it a level of realism you won't find with other interpretations. There's also historical maps and famous artwork globes like Van Gogh and Monet Artwork carefully recreated to transform a flat painting into a three-dimensional piece of art. Visit Movaglobes.comslash ScienceMag and use the code ScienceMag for 10% off your purchase. That's M-O-V-A-Globes.com slash science mag and use the code ScienceMag for 10% off your purchase. I don't know when it happened, but at some point, I have become a casual bird watcher. It could be from spending time on the eastern shore of Maryland, where you can't help but see these amazing birds like osprey, eagles, herons. Many waterfowl saw big population losses in the end of the 1900s, but we were able to bring them back with conservation efforts and water cleanups. Now it turns out most birds aren't faring so well. Kenneth Rosenberg and colleagues have calculated the bird abundance across the U.S. and Canada since the 1970s and have come up with an astounding number. Somewhere around 3 billion birds are missing. And Ken is here to talk to us about this analysis. Hi, how are you? Great.
2: Good morning, Sarah.
0: So where do these numbers come from? Who's counting birds or who has been counting birds since the 1970s?
2: Well, bird watchers have. And so this comes from a variety of sources. The primary source is called the North American Breeding Bird Survey, which is organized by government agencies, the U.S. Geological Survey and the Canadian Wildlife Service. Mm -hmm. But it relies on volunteer birders to conduct these standardized, organized routes across the U.S. and Canada. And this has been going on since 1966. So we have this fantastic long-term data set On bird populations, not all birds are covered by the BBS, and so we drew in data from the Christmas Bird Count, from International Shorebird Mm -hmm. Survey, waterfowl surveys, so that we could have as many species as possible in the analysis
0: the numbers have gone down tremendously, almost 30%. Is that across all species?
2: That's across all species, and that's a net loss. So we've known for Mm. a long time that some birds are declining and some birds are increasing. What we didn't know is if they were compensating for each other and if we were just really shifting to more generalists and more common species and losing the rare ones. And so what we found is that's not happening, and this net loss is across all 529 species in our case.
0: You looked also at another data set. This is an independent data set. It's weather radar that can actually pick up migrating birds. Did you see something similar in in those data?
2: Yeah, that was really amazing. I mean, it's exciting because there's this whole new field of ornithology that uses radar to track bird migration. And we have some of the experts on that right at Cornell sitting with us. So when we started seeing these declines, we said, hey, what are you seeing in the radar data? And when they analyzed the biomass of migration passage year after year, they found a similar decline in the total migration over a 10-year period.
0: Did you see any birds in your survey results that were hardest hit? Were there particular habitats that were implicated in these declines?
2: Well, the top two are grassland birds. And again, that's something we've known for a while, Mm -hmm. but we didn't really know what the magnitude of that loss was. So grassland birds have the largest magnitude of loss. I mean, almost a billion, 600 million birds, 700 million, and the largest percentage loss. We've lost more than half of all grassland birds since 1970. And the other group are shorebirds that mostly breed in the Arctic tundra and migrate down through coastlines, uh, some going all the way to South America. Mm. And that's a group that was already at low abundance but the the rate of decline is so steep that we're worried th- these could be the next species we actually lose. Hmm.
0: We've talked a lot about species extinctions, you know, no more passenger pigeons for example, but this is more about abundance. It's not about a species going away, it's about changes in the population size. Why do you think it's important to focus on this factor?
2: The lesson from the passenger pigeon, that was the most abundant bird to ever live on the planet. Yeah. Nobody thought it could ever go extinct. So it wasn't like a California condor right. or a rare bird. You know, We took billions of passenger pigeons and went to zero in about this same time period. So interestingly, one of our co-authors had done an, a retrospective analysis of passenger pigeon and the decline of the passenger pigeon, based on whatever accounts we could— draw together, looked very similar to what we're seeing now with other common birds. Mm-hmm. So we could be seeing the beginning of this collapse of abundance that could result in extinction of even common birds like the passenger pigeon. So that's why it's really important to focus at this earlier stage when we're seeing the erosion of abundance.
0: Right. So we still have functional populations. Mm-hmm. A lot about the world has changed since the 1970s, and land use in particular. Did you see some correlations with habitat loss, encroachments from cities, or maybe climate change, and you know the bird declines in your results?
2: Well, we weren't able to look at those factors explicitly in this analysis. Mm-hmm. There's lots of other evidence saying that the declines of various groups of birds are because primarily of habitat loss. But when you're looking across Pervasive losses across so many different species, so it's multiple factors at work. And we believe habitat loss is the key, but it's all changing and being made worse by climate change. And then there are all these other factors now that are affecting birds more and more, mm-hmm. such as pesticides and outdoor cats and windows on buildings. So, you know, we have to attack it from from multiple directions.
0: One thing I've seen with climate change science is that animals have changed where they live. They've moved north, they've moved uphill. Is that something you're seeing with birds? Are they living in different places?
2: We have good evidence that birds are moving their habitat upslope. This is happening in South America, in the Andes. It's happening in North America. We know that certain species are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Birds that live right along the coastline in salt marsh are just being literally flooded out. But it's hard to pin down that direct evidence. And I know I'm different from some other people you might talk to. I'm I'm pretty hopeful because birds are incredibly resilient. Mm-hmm. The fact that they can move and the fact that they shift their range and shift their timing of migration means that they've been doing this for a million years right. as the earth has changed. And so there will certainly be terrible effects fr- from climate change, but I'm also hopeful that a lot of birds will be resilient.
0: We've been talking a lot about abundant birds and common birds. What are some of the most common birds in the U.S. and Canada?
2: Birds like American robin, morning dove, you know, birds that people see every day mm-hmm. have populations up in the hundreds of millions. Yeah. When you lose a hundred million of them, you might not even notice that, but this is what's happening across the board.
0: One of the surveys you mentioned is the Christmas bird count. This is a bird survey that's been done by volunteers since uh, 1900 but there's no Christmas mammal survey. Data collection has just been so different for birds. Do you suspect that there are similar trends in abundance happening with other animals? Could we ever keep an eye on them in the same way?
2: Well, that's why we do believe that these declines in bird abundance could be a tip of an iceberg because as you said in your opening, you know, so many people love birds and they're out watching all the time. So we have this incredible connection And that means people are counting and they're paying Mm -hmm. attention. Nobody sees small mammals, or if they do, they trap and kill them. But we have these glimpses that are happening all over the world now with amphibians, with insects, with other bird populations. So across the board, we're seeing these global declines in biodiversity and declines in abundance. But we have the best data for birds, better data than we have for any other animal group. So we really do believe this is an indicator of a larger issue.
0: And this could even be an underestimate since you only looked at breeding animals. Why is that the focus of this counts and what does it suggest about the real number?
2: In most cases, it's easier to count birds during the breeding season because that's when they're singing. And so <laughs> we do a lot, of, a lot of it by simply counting the number of singing birds. And that gives us an index of the breeding population. When they're migrating, they're all over the place. You know, so radar is able to detect the mass of birds, but we can't really Count the individual species. Mm -hmm. So, if you've got your breeding population and they're producing young every year, the number of birds in the fall that are migrating is much larger than the breeding population. So, if you're losing breeding birds, you're losing that breeding potential. And so, fewer and fewer birds are migrating and it can be compounded. So, from the point of view of of ecosystems and, and the impact that loss of abundance is having, Ecologically, it could be much greater than just the number of breeding birds.
0: This, as you mentioned, is a really complicated problem. We're talking about pesticides, habitat loss, climate change. Does this research give us a good place to start, what to tackle first, or is it more bird by bird? We need to figure out what's going on.
2: Well, it is a good place to start, but it's going to take, if not a bird by bird, at least group of bird by group of bird. That's really the next phase of research. And we've we've got 50 years of data on the population change. The next 50 years, we need to concentrate on pinning down what are the exact threats, what is limiting these populations, where. Some of these birds are going all the way to South America and back. And we don't know in a lot of cases exactly where they're, they're suffering the greatest loss. We have a big list of factors that we know affect birds and kill birds directly. We can work to minimize those and work to reduce those, but we don't really know yet exactly what impact that might have.
0: When your team crunched it all together and found this 3 billion number, was it shocking to you?
2: It, it was shocking. And, and it, it, it's shocking that I was shocked because <laughs> I've been in this business for a quarter century. And as I said, we know a lot of birds were declining. And when people asked, have we actually lost birds since 1970? I would have put money on the fact that, well, it's all shifting and, and we're just seeing more and more common species, more and more generalists, And I was just flat wrong. So I was I was kind of staggered by this number.
0: I really care that birds are missing. It's something that's really important just on its face. But are there other reasons that it's something we should worry about?
2: Yeah. So there are there are two answers to that question. One is the one you hit on. There are millions of people who love birds and the loss of birds. It, it's just a terrible thing. And, and the loss of nature around us and people feel that but you know the more technical reasons is birds are serving incredible service to people incredible value in pest control and pollination and seed dispersal but because birds are such a good indicator of what's going on in the overall environment we should be concerned about the loss of bird abundance because it's telling us that we're also losing clean water we're losing healthy soils. We're losing clean air. So it's not just about the birds. And so you can care because you love birds, but people should also care because this is telling us that it's going to affect humans as well.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Ken. Well, thank you. Kenneth Rosenberg is an applied conservation scientist at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the American Bird Conservancy. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's aaasorg join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.